0: next next few days Um, if you have a prayer card we'll pick it up at this at this point Um, and uh, you'll also have a chance later while that's uh, going on just a reminder uh, we haven't given a whole lot of lead time on this but we're having a teens and tweens game night so uh, if you know any teen or tween that might enjoy that, then please uh, tie them up and drop them off here uh, 6.30 on Friday night and uh, we'll uh, try and keep them safe until 8 (coughs) o'clock and uh, then you get them back. This is our Last week in the uh, sermon series, "The Light in My Darkness," and we've been talking here about monsters, about these temptations, and and uh, that, that live within us, and and how uh, we we can live with them in a in a godly in a godly way. But I want to begin today with a a little bit of uh, history, perhaps, or a story. So this is, this map is, uh, you can see the names, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, right up the top there, Philippines in the top right-hand corner. And um, if you want to get from the Pacific Ocean to the Indian Ocean, there aren't a lot of uh, choices for, for how to do this. Uh, so you can come down, one of the main ways is to come down through here. Uh, right through uh, past Singapore and up the coast and then you're off into the Indian Ocean. The other routes are sort of longer, come further south around, around Indonesia. Um, or the really long route that takes you right around the south coast of Australia. But you don't want to go that far if you can just cut through here. So it's a very important location in world strategic, whether it be shipping, commerce, or um, as we're going to talk about, uh, military uh, situations. So if you, that was why the British valued Singapore so much as one of their um, important colonies around the, around the world. Back in the days of the British Empire, it controls shipping throughout Southeast Asia. And so, in the 1900s, to solidify their position there in Singapore, uh, because other people were, other nations were jealous of their position, they constructed large fortifications and. Uh, They had massive defences against uh, a sea, you know, an assault from sea, any um, foreign navies that might attempt to attack them. Singapore itself is actually a very small island, and uh, this is Malaysia. This is about three miles, this this little strait through here that makes it an island. It's about three miles wide here, it's about half a mile wide here. And that's all that separates Singapore from Malaysia. Uh, So it's very, very close to Malaysia. So Singapore has the main, main part of the city is down here on the southern edge of the island. And the, the main defenses were pointing out to sea out here. This is where a Navy is going to come from, right? And so the Japanese in World War II, they took a look at the geography, they took a look at the defences, and they said, you know, they've got the front door well defended, but the back door seems wide open. And uh, the, the British had largely left the back door wide open. The, um, if we just go back, oh, it's hard to see, but the, uh, the Malaysian Peninsula here, Um, because the British had said that is like impenetrable jungle. There's no way an army could make its way down through that jungle and uh, so they weren't particularly worried about you know the Japanese coming from that direction. They knew Japan had a big army a big Navy and they were much more concerned about that. So in a coordinated attack when Uh, At the same time as Pearl Harbor was being bombed, the uh, Japanese also invaded uh, the Malay Peninsula here, and then quickly worked their way, because there wasn't a lot of opposition, worked their way down towards Singapore. One of the things they they did was they gave their soldiers bicycles, um, because the the bicycle could travel on the dirt tracks and paths and everything uh, quickly, uh, compared to say, a tank that needed a much wider highway, and so that enabled them to uh, get it behind British allied lines uh, at different points along the way so so there we are with Singapore um, even as singapore as the japanese approached down the peninsula the british or allied commanders were convinced that they would they would oops they would come from this direction over here this was where the allies had a large naval base and they thought that was the most likely place for, for them to attack There were some, though, who said, oh, over here, look, it's only half a mile wide over here, and it's three miles wide over here. Well, the the Japanese, of course, were were clever, and they had a lot of troop movements over here to keep people occupied and uh, watching them. In the meantime, they had a large build-up in this direction. And the big guns are still pointing mostly out here. Eventually they attacked they had 30,000 troops that uh, were coming down through Malaysia. The Allies had 85,000 troops in Singapore, but many of them were um, Untrained or poorly trained not 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 ready. They weren't well equipped Uh, The guns the big artillery that they did have that they were able to bring to bear had armor-piercing shells because they were Expecting to be fighting warships, not infantry. And so that wasn't the best defense, you know, and um, and so when they and, and because they were all over here, they were the defenders were stretched thin in this area and So the Japanese were able to come and work their way through the lines and establish themselves in Singapore the troops all fell back um, the Allied troops all fell back until they were in this area, and then after about three days, a week, it was, wasn't very long, uh, they surrendered to uh, the Japanese. And they controlled the island of Singapore for the next three and a half years. What the British had thought was an impregnable fortress of Singapore fell. 80,000 British, Australian, Dutch, Indian troops were either killed or became prisoners of war. And so the Allies' trust in their large guns, in their superior numbers, just a sense that they were superior people and therefore had superior military tacticians, created an arrogance that left them unprepared for the Japanese tactics. And so their strength became their weakness. And as a result, the Japanese, as I said, occupied Singapore and controlled the shipping in that part of the world, uh, really until the end of the war. All right, so that sets the stage for what we're going to talk about today. 1st Corinthians chapter 12 it describes how God equips various members of the church with various gifts right um, and it seems as Paul writes to the church in Corinth that various Christians there possessed gifts but these gifts had become status symbols within the church that the better your gift better your gift then clearly the more spiritual and better the person you are Uh, of course the first thing they had to do was establish a hierarchy of gifts so that they could create a hierarchy of people so in first Corinthians 12 and verse 24 uh, we have it on the screen there And it reads God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that the parts should have equal concern for each other I think this is challenging for us the gifts that we each come with should benefit the entire body not just the individual. God intends that our gifts unite the body, not divide it. And, and so you, you can see how quickly we can divide over something that should be good, or we can start criticizing. Okay? Because you know, I have a gift for making captivating slides, and if I ask somebody else to make some slides, and they're not very good, then I can get frustrated and say, "Look, the church needs you to make good slides, right and you're not doing it you know? um, you're not trying you, you don't care, you're not invested in the church, you're not you know whatever it might be but but just because somebody can't do something as well as I can or or in the way that I want them to do to do them, they may be better, but if I don't like it, I think it's worse um, and so just because they do it different, you know, it doesn't take much for me to get upset. And then when I get upset and irritated, it doesn't take much for that to become a disagreement. When it becomes a disagreement, it doesn't take much for that to become two groups of people in the church, right? And uh, all because, you know, they used the wrong font uh, on on the slide. You can imagine I... The 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 lady we bought the house from, she was a um, the the house that, that Julie and I live in. Uh, we knew her. I knew her. She'd been a barista at Starbucks, and so we go to look at the house and I'm like, oh, I know you. But she was also on the the worship team, praise team for a particular church in the area, and uh, I, I saw her again a little while later, and I said, oh, are you still involved with that church? And she's like, no, we left that church because the leader of the praise team left and and I you know volunteered to take the role and they chose someone else and so you know I took my talents elsewhere um, and, and so when, when we have gifts and, and we sort of disagree about how to use them and or disagree about how they should be valued then we can create Conflict uh, That is counter to to what God intends for the church and says that the parts should have equal concern for each other The, the first part of this verse is also so critical because it says it gives greater honor to the parts that lack it and, and isn't it That is so counter to the way that we tend to function as a society We tend to celebrate the people that do great things, the people that accomplish great things. They're the people that we honor. I mean, even if you think in in biblical terms, don't we honor Paul more than the person that cooked Paul breakfast when he was staying in Ephesus? Uh, What about the Philippian jailer? We don't even know his name. He's just the Philippian jailer. I don't know if he kept being a jailer after he became a Christian, but he is forever known within the church community as the Philippian jailer. Paul, on the other hand, had two names. You know, that's how well we know him. And, and so it, it's, it's sort of a natural thing that we do honour, and we do know people that accomplish bigger things. But in the church, it says we're to honour those that, uh, that lack it, okay? those that have struggles, those that, that don't have everything together, perhaps those that, um, for whatever reason, you know, don't have the, the same gifts or as many gifts that are valued within a particular community. And, and so, you know, I, I think of say, uh, you know, we might say putting in the elevator here at Lawson Road. That was something that we do to honor those that need an elevator, okay? Their strength and their legs or their balance or whatever it might be isn't what it has been in the past. And so we say, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money because we want to honor you. We want you to be able to be here, okay? We're not going to spend that amount of money, you know, on the the seats. Right? So those of you that ran up the stairs and you're just looking for a nice comfortable chair, I'm sorry, this is the best you get. Okay? And it's only only a, a fraction of what we spent on the elevator. Right? But the people who need, who are lacking are the ones who need the honor. We give them that honor. And the ones versus the ones that don't need it. That's God's picture for the church. And so Paul, and you see, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul reinforces this message by moving into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which may sound familiar to you. And he says, "The reason we do this is because we love one another. And, and so 1 Corinthians 13, Paul didn't write it for a wedding that he was performing. Uh, Paul wrote it for a church that was going through all sorts of disagreements and disputes and divisions. He said, hey, you guys need to be getting on with each other. This is what love looks like. And then in chapter 14, he again picks up the topic of spiritual gifts just to sort of reinforce that that's how chapter 13 fits in. Specifically, uh, Paul focuses on speaking in tongues and prophecy. And we see this pairing, first of all, in chapter 13 and verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And so we, as we come to chapter 14, Then we see uh, a description of what these tongues and prophecy are uh, starting in verse 1 there. It says follow the way of love eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially Prophecy for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God Indeed, no one understands them, but they utter mysteries by the Spirit But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouraging and comfort." In many instances we we see tongues talked about in in Scripture think the day of Pentecost and it's very clear that It's a reference to foreign languages because people from different parts of the world could understand what the Apostles were saying But it's not the case here in chapter 14 in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians tongues in this context refers to some type of ecstatic worship that was completely between the individual And God because it says those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but God and then verse 3 notice the contrast those who prophesy speak to people for their strengthening encouragement and comfort and so prophecy in this context is much closer to today's preaching than the traditional definition that we have of prophecy that is predicting the future so throughout chapter 14 then of 1st Corinthians Paul repeatedly makes the point that prophecy is preferable in the worship service because it is plain English for the benefit of all those present or Greek or Latin or whatever it happened to be at the time but notice that both tongues And prophecy are gifts from God. Okay? God had given both of them to the church. They're both good things. And so Paul is saying one needs to be practiced when you're by yourself, tongues is best when you're worshiping God on your own. Prophecy is essential when you're in a, a room with other people. They're both good things, but when people's hearts wrong even spiritual gifts can cause division rather than unity and so just as the confidence in Singapore's defenses proved misplaced we can take too much pride in the gifts that God gives us we can start taking credit for it ourselves rather than Recognizing the grace that God has given us. With an unhealthy heart, we can corrupt the most beautiful things. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul there is describing the most beautiful thing. He's describing grace, he's describing forgiveness. And yet, even though he's talking about this wonderful gift that God gives, this this wonderful gift that is at the center of our relationship with God, that is the reason that Jesus came to earth, that is the reason Jesus went to the cross, that is the reason Jesus rose from the tomb, that even though this is what it's all about, this grace and forgiveness, Paul recognizes that he still needs to give a warning. He says, shall we go on sinning, so that grace may increase, he says, by no means, no way. And then again in verse, that was in verse 1, and then in verse 15 of Romans 6, he again says, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Why would you ask the church, shall we sin? Right? Hey, church, let's go out and sin, right? Right? Well, we don't need to be encouraged to do that. Um, But Paul knew our tendency to look for loopholes. He he says, I'm giving you this wonderful gift. Forgiveness. Grace. Nothing that you deserve. I'm just giving it to you. Eternal life. People go, hmm. What if? What if? What if I do this? What if I do that? How much can I get away with? What if I keep sinning, then I get more grace, right? So grace is a good thing. I need lots of it. And so I'll just go out and sin and God will give me lots of grace. And I'll be have more grace than you have. That means God loves me more than he loves you. I mean I'll just be in the best place on earth, right, with so much grace and forgiveness. We can take the most beautiful things and corrupt them so easily. We spent the last seven weeks discussing the idea of accepting that we live with monsters inside us. We live with monsters inside us. We've discussed three monsters that we're all susceptible to. But it's not as though this is a complete list, is it? There are other things that we could add, and maybe some of them are more individual than than others. Your monsters, your greatest insecurity, your greatest doubt, maybe something unique to you. But I want to close this sermon series by highlighting the light. In the darkness, you see there is certainly what we've done throughout this. is, I hope throughout this series, as I hope, uh, prompted you to pause and reflect and to name your monster, right? to 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 recognize your monster, your struggle. But it's about the light in the darkness so here are three three things that i want us to to walk away with uh, that sort of switch the attention away from from our our monster away from our darkness to the light the first thing and i almost put up here darkness can be light okay let's just go with darkness can be good though i think that doesn't mess with our brains quite as much darkness can be good I think a lot of times we associate darkness with negative ideas because darkness is where the monsters live, right? Think back to, did anyone have a monster in your bedroom as a kid? Right? Under your bed, in your closet, uh, somewhere, right? We, we have monsters and they live in the darkness, you turn the lights on, the monster goes away. It's a well-known scientific fact that can be attested by children all around the world. Turn on the light, the monster goes away. And so we associate the darkness with bad things. Would you rather... You know, there are different parts of the city that maybe... Maybe you'd feel comfortable walking in, in the daytime, but not in the nighttime? okay? Because we associate the darkness with the bad things. But I want to suggest that, that darkness can be good, okay? because darkness really represents the unknown. And very often we predetermine, we, pre-de- we decide in advance that the unknown is bad, because we don't like the unknown. And so if we're going somewhere and it's dark and we can't see where we're going, what do we decide is going to happen? In our head, we've already decided there's a cliff with a 100-foot drop, right? We might just be walking out the front door here into the parking lot, but we decide that suddenly there's a step. Suddenly there's a tripwire. Suddenly there's, right? That something bad is out there because it's dark and I can't see where I'm going. How many of us decide, oh, yeah, it's, I know it's straight. I know it's flat. Doesn't matter that it's dark. I can. It's so peaceful. I can just walk straight out and uh, enjoy the solitude and the serenity. And right? nothing to worry about. But our attitude is is different. So darkness can be good, because the unknown is sometimes good. Right? Our fears are what keep us from experiencing the goodness. Darkness can be good because it gives us space to reflect, to think about ourselves, to think about our lives. Darkness can be good because in a sense it reflects Sabbath. It can reflect peace. Darkness can be good because it allows us to sleep Sleep is essential for life Sleep is essential for growth and So darkness Can be good Darkness can also be good because even when it it does perhaps uh, bring fears to the surface it builds our dependency upon God. You see those monsters that live within us. Right? Whichever one it might be of comparison, of more or success, but as we, we realize and say, yeah that, I, you know, we can easily get into the situation of just rolling it back. I'll, I'll just, I can do this. I can, I can overcome this desire for success, this burning ambition, this push. I can overcome this uh, again, this urge for materialism, this urge to accumulate stuff. I can, I can overcome this. I just need to change. I just need to switch. But, but instead, sometimes we find ourselves getting into dark places with those monsters. And it's in those moments that we recognize our dependency upon God, our inability to fight the monsters on our own. The second point that I want us to to see is that good is good. Okay. You see, we can look at those things, we can look at success, we can look at wealth, we can look at comparison, we can look at spiritual gifts, we can look at at blessings, we can look at abilities that we have, and we can perhaps we can be made to feel guilty for having them right We, we can come to view them as uh, temptations, we can come to view them as, as things that uh, maybe I can do this and that person can't and I don't want to show off, I don't want to create distance between us, you know, I don't want to make that other person, and we can come to feeling uh, guilty about the things that we have, right? But God says, at least in, in, in 1 Corinthians there, he says, these are gifts that I'm giving you. The gifts are good. And so if you can sing, you shouldn't feel bad about leading singing in the church. Right? Because that's something good. Now, can that become prideful? Of course it can. That's what we've been talking about is how our good things, how our strengths can become weaknesses. But the fact that our strengths can become weaknesses doesn't mean that the gift isn't good. The gift itself is good. If you're being blessed with wealth, if you, however you measure that, however you measure your possessions, if you are made to feel guilty about that because there, there is, you know, whatever it is, somebody says, you know, you've accumulated too much, and that's between, you've got to work that out with God. How are you using what you have? But it doesn't mean that what you have is bad. Right? It can be good, But what are you going to do with it? What are you doing with it? And so, sometimes I think we need to be reminded that good is good. Because we can make each other feel really bad about the blessings that God gives us. Why do I have a blessing? Why do I have good health? Why does this happen to me? And that other person is in a different situation. The third one is that I think we need to be reminded that God is good. God is good. And I think we need to be reminded of this because those monsters can be pretty scary. Those monsters can be frustrating because they keep rearing their heads. And and so often there is part of us that says, God, why don't you eradicate the monsters? God, why am I still struggling with this temptation? God, why am I still hurting? God, why did my loved one, is my loved one sick or did my loved one pass away? Why is this circumstance happening? Why is this darkness in my life? God, if you're a God of light, why don't you take it away? And so we equate that the absence of, Of hurt the absence of fear the absence of temptation that's the only thing that equals goodness whereas God lets it remain we say if the absence is goodness and God is good then God should take it away what's what's going on the math just doesn't seem to work I wish I'd written down this quote but um, was one author, and they basically compared God's relationship to us in these times of difficulty to uh, being more like a midwife. And said, yeah, it's going to hurt, but you're going to get through it. I'm going to be here with you. Okay? There's something good on the other side. And, and I think one of the big struggles... That Christians have in general is that we somehow have this expectation that our lives are going to be devoid of darkness because we're we're, we're following God and I believe that that we need to be really clear that the darkness hurt and pain and suffering and sickness and death they're all still part of our lives as Christians but God Can still be good in the midst of that because God is with us walking with us saying one day at a time I'm here for you because God gives us grace in the darkness he gives us strength and he gives us the light that we need to move through the darkness it may not be the light that removes the darkness but the light that allows us to move through it and so i wonder if god was sending us a letter like he gave sent to the church in corinth what he would write i know john did this for uh, the revelation class right a few weeks ago but what would he write what sort of Letter would he write to us that would say something like I've blessed you with Fill in the blank But don't think you're better than others Don't allow that gift to cause division Use your gifts for the benefit of others And I wonder what letter God would write to Lawson Road as a church Maybe it would go something like this. I blessed you with fill in the blank but don't think you're better than others use your gifts for the benefit of others it'd be real easy for us to go back to first corinthians 12 1 corinthians 14 um, and thir- 13 and 14 and to spend a lot of time dissecting the specific gifts right I know some of you are still intrigued about tongues and prophecy and what all of that means. And we could spend a lot of time there, but I think if we did that this morning, we would miss the point of the passage. Not that that conversation doesn't have value, but I think the point, as Paul is writing it, is this. See if you can, see if you can detect what he, what he wants to emphasize in his writing. Verse 4 of, uh, this is chapter 14. Those who prophesy edify the church. Those who prophesy are greater so that... Your turn. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that... You are giving thanks well enough, but... Everything must be done so... You see a theme? The gifts, the love, the abilities that God gives us for the building up of the church. not establishing a church empire, a common Lawson Road empire in the town of Greece, the city of Rochester, but building up the people in the church. So here's your next step this week. Will you consider the gifts, the talents, the blessings that God has given you? I always suggest that you take time to write them down somewhere, but whatever works for you. Take that list and ask yourself, how am I using my gifts to strengthen, encourage, and comfort others? Because our strengths can quickly become our weaknesses. Just as with Singapore, right? Strength became complacency, became a weakness. That led to defeat and so our first step is recognizing our monsters recognizing our weaknesses giving them names writing them down being aware of them but then recognizing also our strengths and our gifts and how we're using those to build up the people around us to build up the church and to give glory to God we read from first John Earlier, And I think this is really a good summary. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. May you live in the love of God this week.